I realize that the topic of judgment is not that flowery for any Sunday, especially, uh, especially Father's Day. Um, but that being said, I want to turn with you to Revel- or excuse me, to Romans chapter one, because in there, you know, we're reading the revelation of Jesus Christ. But in the revelation of Jesus Christ, it reveals the judgment of God upon a Christ-rejecting world. And yet, we've already been warned about this once before, at least once, in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, where Paul the Apostle writes this. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And as we're going to see that in today's passage, the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is revealed in them or manifest to them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, even in the Trinity, so that they, meaning all mankind, are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts. You tell God no enough times to his lordship, he gives you what you want, which is life without his rulership, without his protection, without his fatherly guidance. And when we go, that's basically what the Bible says, that sin is lawlessness. And we're seeing the fruit of that, right? We're seeing rioting for whatever reason. It doesn't matter the reason. We're seeing lawlessness and the, the, the love of many are growing cold towards other human beings. And yet what it says here is it's because we tell God no over and over and over again. And then he goes, okay, then I won't influence your life. You'll see what it's like when I'm no longer in charge. And then sin rules and reigns and it causes there to be the wages of sin, which is death. And so all that to say that God's revealing his judgment in the great tribulation, and yet what I also want to point out is that in his judgment, in his wrath, he remembers mercy. He's always, even as we read the book of Revelation, we're reading about all these judgments. He didn't have to give this, us this ahead of time. He gave it to us thousands, hundreds of years, thousands of years in advance, well, yeah, thousands of years in advance. This is being written about 90 AD. We have all this time to read it and go, this is where it's going. I better get prepared. God, in his judgment, he's going to meet out. He's warning me ahead of time. You don't have to be judged. You don't have to experience my wrath. I already sent my son to do that for you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so in Revelation chapter 15, as we've received this proclamation of three angels of the, the good news and the, the wrath of God and how Babylon is going to fall, in chapter 15, he continues on by writing, Then I saw another sign in heaven, 
great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Harps given them by God. So on this next slide I have for you, as we look at this next marvelous sign in heaven, he says he saw something great and marvelous, and it was seven angels having the seven last plagues. We're going to see in the continued pieces of this chapter that as they have these seven last plagues, these judgments, he's going to bring them out of a place that many people on earth say, that's not what God's like. But they're going to bring these plagues, these judgments on mankind from God's throne room. Jesse, I need to the next slide. And so he's bringing them from the throne room, but he's bringing them by angels. And they're holding these final plagues. These plagues would complete God's wrath. We've seen the seven seal judgments in the beginning of this book. We saw the seven trumpet judgments. And then we see the third, wave, third wave. We see these judgments coming, and they're going to be poured out of bowls. Now, if you know anything about bowls, you don't just pour out a little bit. Usually, you start pulling, pouring a bowl out, and it's shallow. It's not like using a cup where you can kind of control it. it. It pours out more quickly. And so the idea is once it's poured out, that's going to all be experienced at once. It's not just in measure. It, but at the same time, I want to remind you that God has told us that in the latter days, in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, that he would pour out his Holy Spirit. And he told the woman at the well, if you drink of my spirit, you will never thirst again. Out of this spirit, the person filled with the Holy Spirit would pour rivers gushing full of rivers of water of life. And yet what we see is that as the wrath of God is poured out, it's going to lead to death. And so there's this sea of glass he sees mingled with fire. If you remember the sea of glass is actually the, the, the glass, the peace-filled sea that sits before the throne of God. When we have a relationship with Jesus and we're in his presence, there's nothing but peace. There, if you ever have seen a peace-filled sea, you got any of you water skiers in here? I like to water ski. You don't get the peace-filled waters to ski on unless you get up before everybody else and you get up before the wind starts. And it is the most smooth, pristine, and you get out there and you can just cut and make huge waves. But my point is, is that usually most ponds and most lakes and most, they're not peace-filled. There's always, especially on weekends like this where boats are flying across, there's choppy water. But in the presence of God, there is peace and there is rest for our souls. And so that sea of glass is just a picture of the peace that we have when we have a relationship with God. But the sea of glass also is right before his throne. It was described in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And so as you look at this sea before the throne of God, you see God's reflection, his character reflected, and it reflects upon those who are in that peace. We receive God's character when we're in relationship with him. But then this sea of glass... It's not just pristine, but it's mingled with fire. 
And in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, remember, there was the, the thunderings and the lightnings proceeding from the throne. And those were the judgments of God being meted out from his place of authority. And so this fire is always a picture of, you know, we have the peace of God, but at the same time, God, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, he is a consuming fire. Peace mixed with fire, pure peace. Fire purifies metal. You heat it up and all the impurities are removed. And so God's going to purify the world by his holy fire. And this is good. So those upon the sea of glass, notice there's a group on top of the sea of glass. They are those who are victorious. Remember, we've talked about how as Christians, we are victors already because of what Christ has accomplished, though we are still in the battle. So those who are victorious over, from the last chapter, the beast, the image of the beast, and then the, the beast's name being tattooed on people's heads and their hands, taking the number of the beast. These are those on top of this peace-filled pure sea. Those that are standing there are those who have been victorious over the beast. But what did victory look like for them in the tribulation if they decided not to take the mark or to worship the beast? Victory looked like death because they were killed if they would not worship the beast. Death doesn't look like victory to us, does it? Death looks like we got defeated. Death looks like it's over. Death looks like there's nothing left because we, all, we only see things from the side of my heart's still beating or my family or, or whatever, but life is actually beyond the grave. Jesus was alive, he lived, and yet his life was a vapor, it was short. He lived less years than most of us in this room. Would you say that he was defeated or that he was victorious? Well, we know that he was killed, but his death was swallowed up in victory. And so here we're looking at these that were trusting in the lamb, did not take the mark of the beast, did not worship this false image, and they were victorious. And because of that victory, they enter into the joy of their Lord. They enter into this pure, peace-filled sea, and they overcame. How did they overcome? Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Their victory is all in what Christ has accomplished by shedding his blood. I'm victorious because Jesus was murdered. I'm victorious because he spilled his blood for me. I don't have to battle to, to, to win anything anymore. I already won. So now, for the rest of my life, I walk in victory. I don't have to do anything to earn it. And, and on top of that, the word of their testimony, they just testify, this is what Jesus has done for me. That's their victory, their confession. And then they weren't afraid. They, they didn't love this life so much that they were afraid to die for what mattered. It mattered not to take the mark of the beast. It mattered not to compromise and worship a false god. And so because of that, they were victorious. They were not afraid to die for doing what's right. Men of this room, don't be afraid to die for what's doing what's right. Many of us have been not afraid to die for doing what was wrong before Christ. Whether it was ramping over something that was on fire, 
you know, or hold my beer and watch. I wasn't afraid to die for doing some stupid stuff. Why are we afraid to die for what matters? But they were victorious by keeping their eyes on Jesus Christ and not focusing on their circumstances. Where are they standing? On top of a sea. Who among you can walk on the water? Jesus did, right? They're standing on it and not sinking. Peter's the only guy I know that tried it. And we all mock him for it, but I've never tried. Other than like on water skis. I don't want to get beat up by trying to do it barefoot. I've seen the guys that do that. It looks painful if it goes wrong. I'm just not willing to risk it. But they are victorious because they keep their eyes on Jesus Christ. We're not going to go there, but in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus comes out to his, his disciples and they're on the boat on the sea. He walks across a storm-filled sea. Not concerned at all. Of course, he's God. You know, we'll give him that. He's Jesus. But he gets out there and Peter looks at him and says, hey, if that's you, Lord. Of course, Mark tells us that they all thought he was a ghost. But then in Matthew, it says that Peter goes, hey, Lord, if that's you, call me out there so I can be where you are. He wanted to be where Jesus was. So he started to walk out. And you'll notice that as he looked at Jesus, he didn't have any trouble walking on the water. But as soon as he looked at the waves, he had trouble walking on the water. Jesus had to rip him out of the water. But that's okay. The, the whole point is, is the, these in the tribulation didn't look at their circumstances. They said, we're going to trust Jesus no matter stinking what. And they were victorious. And they entered into life. They entered into abundant life. And look at this. In verse 2, it says, they're given harps by God. Victory prepares them for worship. I guarantee that worship prepared them for victory as well. But they're given harps. All the ones that couldn't sing on this side of the curtain, all of a sudden they get to heaven, they got the best voices ever. All the ones that couldn't play a guitar, they're given harps. But do you know how a harp makes music? Tension. I hate tension. It destroys my gut. It makes me uncomfortable. But tension leads to worship, like good worship. Good worship. So harps are worship instruments that sing because of tension on the strings. Verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been revealed or manifested. That all those that enter into life through victory, through death, and not like following the Lamb, They sing the song, it says, of Moses. Now, that song of Moses can be found in Exodus in chapter 15, verse 1 through 21. But he doesn't just call it the song of Moses. He calls it the song of the Lamb. And I love this because it ties together, once again, the Old Testament and the New. We see in Exodus chapter 15, and the story goes that it's just after the people of Israel have been delivered from a land of slavery. 
Egypt. They go to Egypt at the guidance of um, Joseph. And as they arrive there, he's given favor with Pharaoh. He interprets the Pharaoh's dream. But fast forward a few years, a new Pharaoh comes on the scene, doesn't know why the Israelites are there. For whatever reason, maybe they tore down monuments and didn't remember the past, right? But they forgot the past. They didn't have a memory of how they got where they were. And because of that, the Pharaoh started enslaving the people of Israel. But guess what? God already knew that was going to happen. And in Genesis chapter 15, God made a promise to Abraham. He was going to make the the people of Israel as, as many as the sand on the seashore. And when he did that, he also promised Abraham, by the way, that he was going to bring him back into the land where Abraham was making a uh, a sacrifice. But he says, before I bring you into this abundant land, the land, land flowing with milk and honey, your people, your descendants, after you die, will be in a land of slavery for 400 years. Why would God do that? So God tells Abram, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The wrath that they're going to receive, they're not yet due. They're not ripe for judgment. I'm going to give them 400 years because I love them too. I love my enemies. I love the people that have rejected me and have not worshipped their creator. They're worshipping the creation. So I'm going to give them 400 years to repent. And I love them so much that I'm going to allow your descendants, Abram, to be in slavery while I give them time to repent. Does that sound familiar? It's kind of like God leaving us on the earth instead of taking us straight to heaven. Wouldn't that be easier? He leaves us here in a place of slavery and bondage and hardship while he's allowing the rest of the world an opportunity to repent. But all that said, I'm getting ahead of myself. Basically what happens is that God gives them opportunity to repent after he brings his own people out of the land of bondage in Egypt, he actually delivers them not only out of Egypt from the hand of Pharaoh, but then they miraculously cross the Red Sea. He delivers them from their enemies and they get to the other side and they worship him in this song, Exodus chapter 15. And it echoes this same song that they're singing in Revelation. Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths 
congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. And you blew your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then listen to this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand. The earth swallowed our enemies. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. That's the same song they're singing in Revelation. You've guided us. You've brought us out of bondage. You've delivered us from our enemies. You've smashed our enemies. Who's like you, O Lord? Mighty in power, awesome in judgment, redeeming your people and delivering them to their place of rest. The place of Canaan, the the Israelite land, is just a type of what heaven's going to be. We will be delivered from the nation of bondage into our heavenly resting place. Jesus has done this for us. And so they're singing great and marvelous. And look at this worship song. It's not about man. It's not about us. It's not about the delivered. It's all about him. I highlighted the word and I I actually underlined it in my Bible. Your works, Lord, are great. Just and true are your ways. Who shall not fear you and glorify you? For you alone are holy, and all nations shall come and worship you. For your judgments have been manifested. And actually echoes this in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. It says there in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But why? Well, you have to look at the verses before that. He says in verse 6, Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took the form of a slave, and came in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because he humbled himself. So because of what's been accomplished on the cross to deliver those who were once in bondage to sin, those who could not deliver themselves and were oppressed by Satan, now we have victory. And so we will get to join in this victory song just the same. So then uh, John continues in verse 5, these things I looked, after these things I looked, and behold, During worship, they've ushered in the presence of God. It says, behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. Remember that the temple on earth is just a type of what it looks like in heaven. It's a model of the real thing. And so it's 
in heaven, the tabernacle of the testimony is opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Or those are golden sashes. And so as they're worshiping and proclaiming that they have victory, God is ultimately going to complete the victory. Did you know that many times in the midst of battle is the time to praise the most? Because though victory has not been accomplished yet practically in your life, that's the, the pathway to victory is praising in the midst of the battle that seems like it won't be won. And so as they're praising, their victory is on, they're right on the heels of their victory. And it says, verse seven, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. No one was able to enter the temple until God's wrath was completely poured out, which echoes the same thing that happened when no one was able to enter into the Holy of Holies where Jesus Christ is seated, where the Father's presence is, until the wrath of God had been completely poured out on Jesus Christ. No one enters. One person, once a year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and, and pray for the nation one time a year with a veil that was 12 to 14 feet tall. And yet when the wrath of God was completely poured out on Jesus Christ, it was ripped from top to bottom. Come on in. The doors are open. You can come in under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. No longer needing a high priest. But I believe that somehow, with God being outside of time, that when this takes place, that if you do not receive the wrath of God poured out on Jesus as your Savior, if you do not receive Jesus as your sacrifice, then the same wrath that was poured out already for you, if you don't receive that free gift in His salvation, in Him taking the brunt, the full punishment for your sin, then that same punishment will be meted out on you for you're rejecting the only one who can save you. And so God's judgment proceeds from his throne. The temple is thrown open and the plagues are unleashed. Think about this, just like the plagues, the 10 of them were poured out on the nation of Egypt. The 10 plagues poured out were judgments on their specific 10 idols that God chose to judge. And yet in this time, it will be seven plagues on the earth. Notice that the angels that are bringing out these plagues reflect what happens in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. Clothed in white garments with a sash of gold around them, they reflect, these servants reflect the one who they're serving, which is Jesus. And then the plagues are unleashed. And I already talked about the prophecy to Abraham. But the smoke in the end of this chapter actually represents the very presence of God's glory. When the people were in, in, in the wilderness and God led them from bondage into the land of Canaan, he led them by a pillar of fire by night, 
keep them warm. It's kind of practical. And then he led them up by a pillar of cloud by day. They're in the desert. What's the best thing you need in the desert? Water, right? But shade. And so the presence of God. But if you read 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon dedicates the temple. He prays over the nation. And they get ready to go in and start making sacrifices. And he makes a multitude of sacrifices so much that the blood and the, the animals couldn't even be counted. And as God manifests his presence and his seal of approval on this place of worship, it says that his glory shine so thick, his Shekinah glory, his presence in this smoke-filled room that the Levites couldn't even do their jobs. It would be like if the smoke machines in some place just went nuts and they wouldn't shut off. Except it's the glory of God. It's not steam. It's not vapor. And so in the same way, God's manifesting himself all the way at the end in the book of Revelation. His presence in the temple is so thick that until that presence kind of dissipates a little bit, nobody can enter. And so all that to say... His judgment will be entirely completed. So chapter 16, we're going to go through this quickly. He says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So the first bowl is loathsome sores that are foul, meaning that they smell. There's a stench, just like leprosy. God's promised to pour out his spirit upon all men, but if you will not receive your, his spirit, you'll receive leprosy. He's going to expose what's going on in the inside of people's hearts. The nastiness will be on the outside and they'll be seen for what they really are. The second bowl judgment. So the first went and poured out his bowl. And then verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. So we've already seen in the trumpet judgments that a third of the sea is changed to blood. This time, it's the whole sea. Blood purifies. And yet, in the blood, it's going to be killed. But then... Not only the ocean, the salt water, but in verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying this. So the fresh water, no longer any fresh water to drink. It all changes to blood. And the angel of the waters says this. Lord, you are righteous, and the one who is, who was, and who is to come because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Right now, man is crying out for perfect justice. And I submit to you, that until Jesus Christ meets out his judgment, perfect justice will never happen. Any man that sets out to be a judge over other men 
will be flawed in his judgment. I don't care what side of the fence he falls on politically, he will fall short because he will be tempted by his own sin. He will be guided by his own bias. He will be, he, he, we just don't see things as clearly as God does. He has pure sight. He doesn't see the actions. He sees the intentions. And by the way, he judges the intentions, not just the actions. And so with that being said, the angels cry out and say, Lord, you are completely just. They worship him for that. He says, um, because they have spilled the blood of saints and prophets, you have given them blood to drink. Blood to drink. If you've ever had a bloody nose, if you've ever swallowed blood, it will make you vomit. It's horrible. It's the worst taste ever. We were not made to drink that. The cults that do that, by the way, are demonic. Nothing less, nothing more, but demonic. It's dark. It's evil. God actually calls it an abomination. And it's an abomination to man if they only had that to drink. He says, they've spilled the blood of my people enough. I'm done. And he gives them blood to drink. He's angry. He is 100% righteously angry. And he will make it right. Nobody gets away with nothing. Just so you know. No person that's ever sinned against God or sinned against you will ever get away with it. That's why you and I, by the way, that includes us, we don't want to get away with nothing. That's why we need Jesus so that he can take and drink the blood so that he can be the one who takes our punishment. Forget our enemies. Let's think judgment begins in the house of the Lord. That's why it's so good. That's why Jesus is so awesome. He loved me even though I sinned against him. And so, verse 8, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So the second three bowls starts with the sun. The bowl is poured out on the sun. The, the power of the sun is no longer constrained to what it's useful for, but it's allowed to burn men. Think about the worst sunburn you've ever had. That ain't nothing. God's going to allow them to be subject to fire and torment. And it says when this happens, they will blaspheme his name. They will curse God. They will not repent and they will not give him glory. That's the hardness of men's heart. And if you think about plagues, you read about the Old Testament where, where the Pharaoh was judged for the sake of God letting his people, or excuse me, Pharaoh letting God's people go. It says there after the first plague and the second plague that, that Pharaoh said, okay, I'll let him go. And then he hardened himself against the warning and said, never mind. And then he hardened himself against the warning of Moses. And then he said, never mind. And then he hardened himself and he hardened himself. And there's a shelf life, by the way, on repentance. When God convicts you of sin, 
do it now. Because the more you prolong repentance, the more you will be hardened to God's grace and the more likely you are to never repent. And if you look at Moses, it says he did not repent, he did not repent, he did not repent. And then it says God, instead of Pharaoh hardening heart, Pharaoh's heart, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the word means that he set in place what Pharaoh chose. He could no longer repent of his sin, and he was judged for it. He could no longer repent. And man's heart's the same way. And we see this because if I'm experiencing fire, I'm thinking, of course I'm going to cry out and say, God, save me. Uh, No, not necessarily. We can harden ourselves to the point of never humbling ourselves. So then it goes on, the fifth bowl. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. Now, he is the king of darkness, but now the reality is exposed. It says that his kingdom became full of darkness. Remember, there's all these people that have worshipped the beast, taken his image, taken his name on them. They're following him. The king of darkness actually has a following now. And what happens is that the common grace of God is taken away, and they are able to keep what the king of darkness has given them, Satan. And it says, they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Just because what it seemed to be going good for them while the saints were being murdered doesn't mean that was the final word. And then verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouths of the false prophet. Excuse me, the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So this is heavy, right? Because it says that he dries up the river Euphrates. When I read this, I was like, big deal. God dried up a river. But what Wikipedia says, because it's on the internet, it's got to be true. But, But what Wikipedia says about the river Euphrates is it's the longest and one of the most historically important rivers of Western Asia. It's the longest and one of the biggest rivers, approximately 17 to 1800 miles long now. And so what's interesting is that we know God created the heavens and the earth. He can dry up a river. But to the world that says God's not the creator, we just happened by accident, for God to dry up a 1700 mile river, that's pretty amazing. But it says that the reason he dries up this river The seventh judgment is he's going to allow mankind to get together and fight against him. You want to rebel against me? Let's do this. Circle up the wagons. Let's do it, boys. And so it's like the best Western ever, you know. And then as they come across, it says he's preparing the way because it says that in the battle of Armageddon, all of the armies of the world will get together. Well, most of these armies that can't get there are blocked by the river Euphrates. So when it's dried up, 
They no longer need a bridge to quickly get their armies across. There's only a few. They just need one dry riverbed. So they can all come across in mass at once, heading straight towards, and as you see on the map there, the river Euphrates, they come from the east to the west. They're heading towards, if you can see it, it's tiny. On the left-hand side of that picture, they can head towards the Valley of Armageddon. So I have there for you a picture and a really cool animation. And I have a map of the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Right in between it is the nation of Israel and a little cool arrow that points to Megiddo. And that is the plane that Napoleon said, if you were going to have a war, if you're going to have one of the most epic battles, that's where you'd want to have it. God can speak through anybody, right? Napoleon apparently had some pretty good theology. And so what's going to happen is as this riverbed is dried up, then these armies of these nations of the east are going to come in mass, and they're all going to join together in Megiddo, and they're going to have the war, the battle to end all battles. So it says there in the sixth bowl, at the same time I saw three unclean spirits like frogs, they weren't frogs, but they were like frogs, and they were coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the mouths of the false prophet. And it says, they are spirits of demons, performing signs, and they will go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them together to battle of the great day of the God Almighty. So these armies will be gathered together because of the hardness of men's hearts, but they will be demonically inspired. These demons will spread out and go start whispering in the ears of, of these kings and say, hey, we need to go shut down this rebellion against this one world government. And they'll go, they'll set up the battle, but they're demonically inspired to go do this. And this is all part of God's, uh, God's strategy is not going to be thwarted. But I also want to point out something else, the seventh bowl. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now when the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God, to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. This is a cup of judgment. And then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. It's about 80 pounds, by the way. That's quite the size hail. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. So, the seventh bowl judgment. And the, the phrase I want to focus in on here is that the, the seventh bowl judgment, when it's poured out, there's a voice from the temple in heaven that says the phrase, it is done. Does that sound familiar? In John chapter 19, Jesus breathed his last and he cried out one last time and he said, tetelestai, which in the Greek means it is is accomplished. It's complete. It's come to fruition. The plan is done. And so Jesus on the cross said it's finished. 
judgment on sin had been poured out, the wages of sin, death, have been paid for by Jesus to those who would repent and receive the free gift. But guess what? What do mankind say to this free gift? They say, uh-uh, I don't want it. I don't need God, he's just a crutch. And so what we're seeing in this seventh-fold judgment is, okay, if you're going to reject me taking the wrath of God for your sin, then guess what? Rocks. Rocks. What would they do in the nation of Israel if somebody uh, broke the law and sinned against God? They were a nation set apart for God's use. They were supposed to be holiness to the Lord. Someone sinned, they would be stoned to death in the public square. Proverbs, I just highlighted it this week in my little online Bible, says that if, if you don't punish ungodliness or lawlessness quickly, then it abounds even more. That if you don't punish sin, sin goes rampant. So if you make a judgment and you show people the consequences for sin and that punishment will be meted out, it, it, it cuts it off at the pass. But what happens here is that when men reject the finished work of Jesus Christ, they will be finished by God. They will receive the just due for their punishment. It says that nations and cities of the earth will be destroyed. Great Babylon is no more. And to those who would flee to an island, perhaps build a bunker, or go to the mountains and hide away from, well, I'll just get away from society. I can hide behind a rock. God can't find me there. It says that the islands will be, they'll flee away, and the mountains will be made level, and every high place will be brought low. No place for mankind to hide from the judgment of God, none. No stone unturned. And then it says, great hail fell upon men. 80-pound hail. Makes golf ball size seem kind of trivial. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Jesus told a parable of the wicked vine dressers. He said, here's another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. He dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers. He went into a far country and when the vintage time came, the time for harvest drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive the fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, they beat one of them, killed one and stoned another. And again, he sent another servant more than the first servants, and they did likewise to them. And then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And those listening, especially the disciples, said, they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers 
who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever, listen to this, falls on this cornerstone will be broken by him. Whoever humbles himself on this stone will be broken. But whoever, on whomever this stone falls, it will grind him to powder. You got two options in life. Fall on the stone or the stone falls on you. And so I want to close with this thought as I was reading in Psalm chapter 73 this morning in my daily Bible reading. Psalm 73. King David struggled with uh, unrighteous people not getting, in his opinion, what they deserved. Psalm 73. As we close. David writes, excuse me, it says it's a psalm of Asaph. He writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the prideful, the boastful, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain, and I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and I'm chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. The psalmist is writing, I'm looking at the earth that I live in right now, and the unjust seem to get away with everything, and I seem to be tormented day and night. And yet what he said, verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Verse 17, he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood the end of the wicked. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake... You shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually 
with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. And so, Father, we don't understand everything on earth. You are God in heaven, as Ecclesiastes says. And I'm here on the earth. I only see from my perspective. So I'll let my words be few. Lord, we confess that we don't know what's righteous, but you do. We confess that we, we long to see you make righteousness reign. We long to see your judgments be meted out. Lord, I love that you're not willing that any should perish. Lord, at this time, I just confess that I... I want you to, to love my enemies. I want you to save my enemies and make their hearts right before you. I'm so glad that on the day of judgment that you will rule and judge righteously those who have rejected you, those who have committed sin against you, have not repented, will be judged. And I'm thankful for that. But I'm also thankful, Lord, that you took my punishment and that you made things right on my account. And I pray that for my enemies. Lord Jesus, I'm not desiring that any man should experience 80-pound boulders. I'm not desiring that anyone would experience loathsome sores. But I am grateful that those who are harmful will be judged and that you'll cleanse the earth of unrighteousness because of your love. I'm thankful that you will give vengeance because vengeance is yours. And I'm thankful that you are just in all your ways, that no one will be unfairly judged. And so I look forward to that day. Lord, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for loving us even though we were your enemies. Lord, thank you for your justice. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Lord, help us to understand how these things apply to us as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.